we are working through, if, if, you're, if you're new to Polaris, uh, new, to the, new to what we're doing, we are working through the, um, the, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is one of the four Gospels in the New Testament of the Bible. The Gospels are the biographies of Jesus. And Matthew uniquely was telling his story to Jewish people. And this is going to be important today because that means that his audience... Um, is going to have a lot of Jewish ideas and Jewish thinking in their, in their mind um, while they're listening to the book of Matthew being read. So, I'm going to read this passage, and then we are going to talk about one specific word that Jesus uses here. And hopefully by the end, um, you, will you will see some different possibilities for how to interpret that. Um, and more specifically, some ideas of why that is important to your life today. So, Matthew 5, 29. If you're right, this is, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, one of very famous collection of Jesus' teachings. <clears throat> if your right eye causes you to sin or stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, Sermon on the Mount laced with hyperbole like this, overstatement for effect. So um, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus uses a word that the translators of the Bible translate from Greek into our English word, hell. And I want to take some time to explore uh, what the Bible really says about hell and what it doesn't necessarily say about hell. And as we set out to do this, I want to first kind of um, break the ice a little bit, um, till the ground, whatever. I want to talk about some difficulties in creating hard and fast conclusions about what hell is going to be like. The first difficulty that we're going to face, and I've talked about this before with you, is that our mindsets are very, very different than first century Jews. Um, we are Western, governed by Western thinking and Western ideals. The Bible was written largely in an Eastern culture with ancient Eastern mindsets. Now, here's what I mean by that. In the West today, we like for things to fall into line. We look for logic and rational thinking and, uh, you know, bullet points. If, if the Bible were written the way we Westerners would want it to be written, it would be about that thick with bullet points. Here's what's true. Here's what's false. Here's what's sin. Here's what's right. And we could read it in about 20 minutes and know the mysteries of the universe clearly delineated. As evidence that we want this, I would direct you to almost any church website because they will have their statement of beliefs where they take a Bible this thick, make it one written page of bullet points, this is what we believe about this. 
That's Western thinking. Okay? Easterners, much more concerned about the process, about the relationship, about the journey woven together. Gene Smith, one of our elders, once said it very well. The, the, um, the Western man listens to the Eastern man and says, that doesn't make any sense. The Eastern man says, who says it has to make sense? And the Western man's mind explodes. <coughs> the second problem that we have uh, with, with this idea of hell is that from a very early age, we are given these presuppositions through even like cartoons. Okay, Yosemite Sam gets blown up by dynamite. He goes down with the big pots of boiling water in the fire and he now has a pitchfork and a pointy tail and horns. We have these visual, I, I've seen um, my kids watch Tom and Jerry. Okay, this idea of the place with the fire that you go when you die if you're bad. And that hits our psyche around three years old as we start watching cartoons and seeing these different ideas. Another issue that we have in coming up with what the Bible really says about hell is we have these emotional um, implications. Uh, there are some of you who absolutely would hate to think that God would be punishing your great-grandpa who lived a good life but died apart from Jesus for all eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever, eternal, conscious, agony, punishment. And emotionally, we can't deal with the fact that the Bible may present that. Conversely, I've known some followers of Jesus who would label a people group and say, if they're going to be there, I don't even want to be there. So some of us emotionally can't handle the thought of a merciful God that found loopholes. And hell was anything but eternal conscious punishment. Because some of us emotionally want to see that. There's also a fourth reason we struggle to find what the Bible really says. And I'm dealing with that right now. And that is fear of what is often labeled as heresy. Hell is one of those topics where it's clearly defined, this is what fundamentalists believe about hell, this is what liberals believe about hell, and there's some fear that we don't want to be labeled either one of the two. And as I present these various views of hell today, I almost feel like the one man in the group of women. He opens his mouth and is wrong. There's the one takeaway for the day. We can sing and go home. And then finally, our church traditional value, our, our, our you know, whatever you, you may have grown up Catholic or, or Baptist or Lutheran or whatever, and you've been trained, even before you were old enough to read the Bible for yourself, what the conclusion is that you need to conclude. Um, one of the unique things about our movement of churches, about our grouping, our brotherhood of churches, is that the goal is to read Scripture and value Scripture. Um, and, and there's no set thing about most doctrinal issues that you have to conclude as long as you're using Scripture as your source. Now, I want to be very clear that I believe that the Bible... Um, speaks many truths very, very clearly. 
Um, I believe that, that, you know, the Bible very clearly says that Jesus rose from the grave. I believe that the Bible very clearly says Jesus died for your sins. I believe that, that the Bible very clearly says that Jesus is the only path for forgiveness of sins. Uh, so I'm not trying to uh, just sort of create the Bible as this or, or pitch the Bible to you as this web of, of abstract ideas um, that is relative and things like that. I don't believe that at all. I just believe that the Bible is also a book of, of possibilities as our human minds try to grasp the eternal. Okay, let's move on to first century realities. When Jesus told his people, your whole body could be thrown into hell, what would have gone through their minds when they heard that? Because Jesus kind of glosses over the concept. He doesn't delineate. Here's what I mean by that. He just uses the word and moves on. So what would the first century believers, or first century Jews, I should say, uh, first century listeners of Jesus have thought about when he said that word. And the first thing to realize is that when first century Jews knew Old Testament scripture very, very, very well. And Old Testament scripture just doesn't talk a lot about hell. It doesn't talk much about life after death, to be honest with you, to the point where there were groups of religious leaders, respected religious leaders, that didn't even believe there would be any life after death. They loved and believed the Old Testament, but they did not believe that there would be any life after death because the Old Testament says so little about the concept of our being in heaven or hell. So... When Jesus refers to hell, it's kind of this open book. And there were a lot of external, external from the Bible, extra-biblical collections of ideas, rabbis' teachings about what hell would be like. And they ran the gamut from no resurrection to eternal fire to some hybrid in between. So there was no set idea that Jesus specifically labels when he says this word that is translated hell. Now, the second very important thing we need to know about the first century. Go ahead to the next slide here. <coughs> the Greek word that is used, that is translated hell in Jesus' teaching here is Gehenna. Say that with me, Gehenna. And... What Jesus literally does when he says this is he says, your whole body will be thrown into Gehenna. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Gehenna was a geographical place in Jesus' day and time. It would be like me saying, your whole body will be thrown into Toledo. I'm not making the hell comparison. I'm simply saying it was a physical, actual Pittsburgh. There. Now I'm making the... <coughs> um, so, anyway. Um, this is a valley to the south of Jerusalem. And that's the Gehenna Valley. It's also called the Valley of Hinnon. And for centuries... 
in times before the time of Jesus, this was a valley for child sacrifice. People would go there to sacrifice their children to foreign gods. So this was a place of just vile uncleanliness, so much so that it later became the Jerusalem city dump. There were constant fires going and horrible smells in the Valley of Hinnon in Gehenna as people took their trash out and threw their dead animals out there to burn it. There's actually a gate in Old City Jerusalem called the Dung Gate. It's because that's where people would wheel out their human excrement to be thrown into the Gehenna Valley. So, when Jesus says this to a first century crowd, he's saying it to a group of people who think a variety of things about heaven and hell, and apparently that was okay because there's not much clearly delineated in the Old Testament. And he's using the word... Um, that they're going to associate with the flaming city dump. Now, this word had already been used in reference to God's judgment. So it's not like Jesus was coining a new phrase here. The problem is when it's used in reference to God's judgment, it's used with all different types of possible meanings behind that kind of symbolism. So it's a highly symbolic word that... that, that um, that some of the Jews believed, let me, let me read this now, some of the Jews believed that Gehenna was symbolic of a place of eternal judgment. Some of the Jews believed that Gehenna was a place of purification, where through fire, God purified, because remember that fire was used in ancient culture to destroy and to purify and strengthen. All right. Finally, Jewish concerns, and this is absolutely legit, were much more based in current life and their nationality's development than in individual eternal certainty. So it could be that Jesus doesn't delineate, here's what hell is going to be like after you die, because his first century crowd just didn't think like that. It wasn't of concern to them. They wanted to know what was going to happen with national Israel and the people of God. Now let's move on. I want to talk about three dominant biblical views of hell. And by biblical views, here's what I mean. I'm not talking about a view that somebody says, I don't believe in Scripture and this is what I believe about hell. I'm talking about people who are looking to Scripture to see what does the Bible teach about hell. And that's one of the fascinating things is there are scholars who love Jesus, love people, love the Bible, include A. And then there are scholars who love Jesus, love people, love the Bible, and conclude B. And those are biblical views. One of them's right, one of them's not. Or maybe none of them are right. But they're biblical views. So that's what I'm talking about. These are Jesus-centric views, Bible-centric views about hell. The three are this. Love wins, which is also called Christian universalism, annihilationism, and then what we'll call eternal conscious punishment. 
Let's explore. I'm going to start with the most controversial. And it's the view that I'm calling Love Wins or Christian Universalism. Now, there's a recent author named Rob Bell who wrote a book called Love Wins, which details this view much better than what I'm going to. And, and he has just created a lot of enemies overnight with it, but also started a lot of discussions. Now, let me talk about biblical support for the concept of Christian universalism. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, no doubt, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And what proponents of Christian universalism say is that somehow, in some way, the love of God is going to lead all people to the love of Jesus, which will melt their heart and bring them alive spiritually so that all are made alive. That's one biblical support reference for this view. The second, John 12, 32. And there are a lot more. I'm just, just giving you the basics here. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, this is Jesus talking, will draw all people to myself. Now, the other sides of the other views are attacking these verses like crazy. I'm just telling you this is what a Christian universalist believes about these views. That when Jesus said, I will draw all people to myself, that somehow, in some way, God works it out and all people are drawn to Jesus. One last concept here, it comes from Colossians 1.19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and this is Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth, things in heaven, making peace through his blood. The Bible in several places speaks of this reconciliation of all things through Jesus. Now, <coughs> biblical references to Gehenna speak of current realities that when this, this is, again, this is what a Christian universalist would tell you. When Jesus is talking about Gehenna, he's talking about current hell that we bring in our life by bad decisions and a place of refinement. The idea of hell being a place of refinement is critical in Christian universalism. This biblical view doesn't say there is no hell, but it says that through this era, whatever it looks like, God refines and melts the human heart into full submission to the Lordship of Jesus. There's a biblical possibility. The idea, and this is legit, the idea of foreverness, of eternity, is not prevalent in ancient Jewish culture. The word that is usually translated forever can also be translated season or age. And so when Jesus says, depart from me for eternal punishment, 
it is possible that that could be translated accurately, depart from me for an age of purification or refinement. And so what the Christian universalist believes is that the fire associated with hell in Scripture is a refining fire that brings someone into the light of God. And in an age to come, because they thought in terms of ages, we think about this life, then heaven. They thought about ages. And after this age, there is an age of refinement where the love of God wins over the justice of God and every heart is melded and God does in fact reconcile all things to himself through Jesus. Now let me tell you why I sympathize with this view. I'm not saying I hold this view, I'm saying I sympathize with it. Because when it comes to this stuff, to be honest with you, if God were to suspend you all above a swimming pool of sharks and say, Alex, you tell me between these three views, which one's right? Or all these people are going to get thrown into the shark water? I wouldn't know because I'm not 100% sure. And the Bible isn't written in such a way I think that God demands that I be 100% sure of this particular topic. I have a professor in college who was my very favorite professor. I took his classes more than any other professor. Biblically solid. Biblically conservative. And what he tells me is that this view is very possible. It is very possible that we're going to learn because the Bible, Jesus often speaks of, of some serious shock on the part of believers as to what happens at Judgment Day. Um, it's very possible. I sympathize with this view <clears throat> because when I think about reconciliation, it's hard for me to imagine true reconciliation of all things with a piece of that reconciliation being one of God's children in conscious, eternal torment for billions and billions and billions and billions of years. I also sympathize with that position because as a parent, I can't imagine uh, one of my children being alive without any hope of ending up back at the dinner table on Christmas Day. Like, I love my kids so much that I can't imagine as a parent there being no hope left for them to reconnect with me. Um, at the same time, the Bible says that God's ways are as high as the heavens above the earth than my ways. And so just because I can't fathom a loving parent doing that, doesn't mean that God can love us more than he loves, more than I love my kids, and still eternal conscious punishment is a part of his plan. Because I don't think like God, and you don't think like God, and his ways are high above our ways. Okay, it's the essence of Christian universalism that through ages of refinement and fire, Gehenna, God reconciles all things to himself. Now, 
Annihilationism is the second view that I want to cover. And this is the belief that at some point in Gehenna, hell, the soul ceases to exist. In other words, there's punishment that ends with the cessation of existence of the soul. So, I'm going to be quick about this. Um, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will, have, will not perish, but have everlasting life. There's this idea often in Scripture of one side of the spectrum, perishing, destruction. The other side, eternal life. And what the annihilationist says is, how can you perish if you never really perish? How can you be destroyed if you're never really destroyed? Isn't that just eternal life in another direction? And you're not in the process of perishing if there's never really an end and you perish. You're just living forever in agony, but the Bible uses language of perish. The Bible also uses the language of the second death. Revelation 20, 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Now the Bible says that if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, they were also thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And so the annihilationist sees this as a reference to a second, total, complete death where the person just is no more. Now here's what I can tell you is that in Christian conservative scholarship today, this view is the dominant view. The trend is, now take that for what it's worth, because scholars and really smart people believe a lot of things that aren't right, Okay just like you and I believe a lot of things that aren't right. But just, you know, data point, annihilationism is among the leading views uh, in scholarship today about hell. <clears throat> now the last view I want to cover is eternal conscious punishment. At some point, the person is sent to hell and they are punished actively aware of that punishment in agony forever and ever and ever and ever, billions and billions and billions and billions of years. Revelations 20, Revelation 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the book of life, recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And it goes on to, this is Judgment Day. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So there you see the possibility that it's not ages and ages, but that it's forever and ever. And that a person is punished actively for all eternity. In Luke 16, and I'm just going to quickly reference it, there's a story that Jesus tells, and it's tough to know whether or not it's a true story or a symbolic story. But if it is a true story, it speaks of a very rich man who had no care for the poor during his life and ends up on one side of a chasm and it's fixed. And he is in such torment that he is begging for somebody to put a drop of water on his tongue so that he could find comfort in a drop of water. (coughs) Let me tell you um, my thoughts on these three possibilities. Um, And the first is this. I do consider myself uh, conservative biblically. I mean, I believe that the Bible is all true. Even the pieces of the stories that don't reconcile well and seem to contradict, I believe that. Like Homer Simpson said, I believe the Bible is true, even the parts that contradict each other. Um, I, I am a conservative Bible reader. But I don't know which of these views is the right interpretation of the truth of Scripture. So here's my advice. There is a strong possibility that hell begins at Judgment Day after we die and is fixed so that when we are cast there, we have no more opportunity to accept Jesus and this death on the cross, and we will be in active torment forever and ever and ever and ever. And with the stakes that high, I think it's wise if we build our lives around that possibility. I mean, I think it's best if we err on the side of treating life as treating our own eternity I mean, can you imagine the despair? And I don't, I mean, I, I, this isn't meant to manipulate, but I mean, I want you to think about the despair of never accepting the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and all of a sudden car accident, whatever. There you are standing before God with no hope and you are cast into eternal punishment forever. The hopelessness, the darkness, the regret, the agony, the despair. And this is a possibility biblically. And it's a possibility for that neighbor that you've never taken the time to talk with. Or the family member or friend or co-worker. And I think we need to live life with that kind of urgency. At the same time, I know that there are some people who are very far from God, partly because they have such a tough time believing in a God who would punish people for billions and billions and billions and billions of years. And there are some followers of Jesus who use that to almost exploit a person's distance from God because of that. 
And I hope that what we can see is a strong possibility that the mercy side and the love side of God went out over the justice side. And in the end, all things, all hearts melt and God reconciles everything. That's a biblical possibility. But if that possibility takes any urgency away from you to get your life right, it's a dangerous possibility. And if that possibility takes away any of your urgency to invest in the souls of those around you, then that's a dangerous possibility. So I think we need to think worst case scenario here and be serious about giving our life to Jesus and accepting the sacrifice. Because the Bible is clear that our sins have separated us from God. And the only path to forgiveness is the blood of Jesus because he paid the price for our sins. So we're never going to earn our way into heaven or earn our way out of hell. It is if we accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, he paid the death penalty, he went through hell in many ways for us. So that by faith in that sacrifice, we are forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. And we shouldn't put that off because the stakes are pretty high. And let me close with this. Jesus was much more concerned about this life here and now. Because Jesus definitely saw hell here. He saw Gehenna here when people sinned. But he also saw heaven here. He envisioned a group of people who would take the principles of heaven, his teachings, and bring them to earth. So I hope that we can be a kind of people that brings heaven to earth instead of hell, and that by bringing heaven to earth, we move people out of their own personal hells and eternal hells and into a life of God's kingdom.